Don't turn it off now. You need this stuff. Tampa Bay's Tantalk Radio Network. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer one, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Largo Road, near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. The Trans Am Champion is brought to you by MG and Triumph Sports Cars and Quaker State Oil. He's been at it decades now, this race driver named Bob Tullius. But his passion for victory is as strong as ever. He's raced many kinds of cars on a multitude of tracks, but his special challenge lies within the unique brand of North American competition called the Trans Am. This is a series of road racing events intended to bring American-made sporting machinery like Corvettes and Camaros into competition with European GT cars like Porsches and Jaguars. It's a series with a long and dramatic history, including such heroic names as Mark Donahue, Dan Gurney, Peter Revson, and Parnelli Jones, as well as the man who won at Sebring in the spring of 1966, the first Trans Am ever, Bob Tullius. is a winner. I'm broadcasting. This is Brian Redman, retired racing driver, nine times racing champions, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google TanTalk1340.com, and you can see us live. Here in the studio. And don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. And, Bobby, good evening. How are you doing? Greetings from the epicenter of all things American rhythm and blues rock and roll barbecue celebration to you, Robert. Hey, thanks, Ted. In other words, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Uncle Ted. 
hey, he'll be here in concert this summer, and then with a little luck, we'll have uh, Uncle Ted on the radio show. But anyway, uh, yeah, Bobby, what I was going to tell everybody is uh, you've been kind of massaging the uh, website, so it's looking better and better and better. Oh, it is. Don't forget to check out GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Yeah, right, and go to uh, the Nostalgic Radio and Cars uh, drop-down for a, a complete history and listening availability of all the past shows. That is our podcast, right, Bobby? Yes, actually, if you go to the Nostalgic Radio and Cars page of GulfstreamMotorsports.com, you'll be able to find links to listen live on Tantalk Radio Network and visit our podcast and anything else you might need social media-wise. Yeah, don't forget, why don't you go ahead and uh, expound on the social media. Yes, Facebook and YouTube, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Twitter and Periscope at NRC On Air. How about that? Okay, hey, we got an exciting show for you this evening. Now, if you caught the beginning of the show, we played a little clip from uh, with uh, one of our uh, legendary race car drivers, and he will be on the show a little bit later, Bob Tullius. Now, the reason we invited Bob on today, tonight, is because it is the 50th anniversary of the Trans Am Racing Series, which actually Trans Am Racing and um, Can-Am Racing were my two favorite racing series as I was growing up. And reason being is because the Trans Am series, obviously, you know, the Trans Am Mustangs, the Camaros, the Firebirds, um, Corvettes were in there as well. A lot of the European sports cars, Alfa Romeos, Porsches, MGs, Triumphs, Heelys, Jaguars, just, uh, you know, a lot of those really cool cars were in the Trans Am series back then. And they had different classes, Group 3 and Group 4, Group 5, Group 6. And Group 5 and Group 6 was pretty much the Trans Am Mustangs. And, of course, Ford dominated that for a long time, and um, except... And uh, they had a couple of mishaps there, but 68, I think they won. 67 went to Donahue. 68, I think, went to Ford. 69 went to Chevrolet. 70 went to Ford. 71 went to Donahue and the AMX, and so on and so on. And of course, you know, Mark Donahue was probably one of the greatest uh, American Trans Am drivers that we've had. But the gentleman that's coming on this evening was the, I believe, the very first winner of the Trans Am race, and he was driving a Dodge Dart. And uh, so we're looking forward to having him on the show this evening. He actually made his career racing British cars. And if you caught the beginning of the segment, it said something to the effect that this show is brought to you by MG and Triumph in Quaker State. Well, Bob Tullius was sponsored by British Leyland, which was Jaguar, Triumph, MG, and maybe one or two other British cars. Mini, I think, was uh, part of the British Leyland family, which was kind of like General Motors uh, of England, so to speak. And um, But he won the very first Trans Am race, which I believe was held in spring of 66 at Sebring. And uh, Sebring was also one of my favorite tracks, uh, you know, from the days when I used to autocross and club race and sport car race and stuff like that. I did one uh, vintage race there. I think I did some SACA stuff there. But anyway, so we're looking forward to having him on the show. Now, we're going to do something interesting tonight. Now, normally we would have the Speed Culture Minute. But, Bobby, I don't know. if Can you go ahead and uh, Skype our buddies over there? Because Jeff Jeff Icy, or Ice Ice Jeff. Uh, a Star Wars website. <laughs> uh, they are doing, somehow they got their schedule confused. But the Speed Culture uh, team somehow, or the other half of it, I should say, uh, forgot that our show is at 7 o'clock. So what they did is what Speed Culture is doing now is they're not doing a live radio show, but we are doing a podcast and so Jeff is over in the studio in Tampa right now doing his show, or our show, his show, and then I'm doing my show. But I was supposed to be over there, but since I'm over here, we can't do this. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to Skype in the Speed Culture team. Now, uh, Gene Teston from Garage One is over there with him in the studio, right, Bobby? Yes, he is. And we have place to call, so we we're have, waiting. We have place to call. So now we've never done this Skype deal, or at least I've never done one on my show. So this be kind of this should be kind of interesting. So Jeff is going to give us the, the the rundown on how the Speed Culture podcast and social media is going to overnight generate thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners and followers, right? Because push notifications are now featured in the Apple version of Speed Culture app and are coming soon to the Android version. To the Android, because the Apple, the new revised Apple edition is out. Now, also, the classified section is also available, so if you go to speedcultureapp.com, you can run to the website, and uh, soon, soon, hopefully by the end of the month, we'll have that working very, very well. And so... Uh, We've placed the call to Ice Ice Jeffy, and we're going to see what's going on. In the meantime, I'm going to yeah, talk. Yeah, you, you want to hear the you want to hear where the ringtone is? Yeah, let's hear the ringtone. Yo, VIP, let's kick it. 
wait and listen. Oh. That, that's, that's what happens when you try to call Ice Dice Jeffy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Anyway, yeah, for, for the, a lot of the regular contributors and stuff like that, we actually have background music for them. For example, when Alan calls, we play The Saint. Alan, if you're listening, you can call in for a minute. He's a big British car guy. And, uh, and right now, him and I are sorting out this 1974 MGB GT that, uh, that a customer of ours has acquired. And uh, it's a pretty cool little car. It's, it's actually kind of a rare car. It's called Mirage. That's the factory color. And, uh, but it's also mauve, if you're looking at it from a woman's perspective. Okay. The car came with factory wires, factory dealer-installed air, factory rear window defrost, and factory overdrive. Now, if you've got a overdrive car, wires, and air, you basically have a trifecta. Now, you throw in a couple extra colors and a couple extra features, like the rear window, rear, rear, rear window, window defrost, and then you actually have a couple more couple extra features. Now, having said that, this has been a car that's been in the family. This is the way you want to buy a car. You want to buy a car that's, that runs and drives, preferably. Okay, now, British cars are exceptions to the rule because they kind of want to run and drive when they feel like it because somehow they, they got a mind of their own. I always rag on British cars. Well, being a big German car fan, but my first car was a 1965 Austin Healey. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the reason it was an Austin Healey is because it was kind of a cool car back in the day. I mean, the Jaguar was kind of like the in, – in terms of the British car pecking order, you had a Jaguar, okay, sports cars now we're talking, a Healey, an MG, and a Triumph. Or the Triumph guys will beat out the MG depending on which one. So let's just say, for example, you had an MGA if it was an early 60s car, an MGA – Mm, kind of goes neck and neck with a TR3, maybe a TR4. An MGB, kind of cool, and a neat car, very dependable, not fast, not fast at all. It's only got like 75, 80 horsepower, so they're not real fast, okay? I mean, it barely keeps up with a 356, and they were, they looked fast, okay? Matter of fact, a lot of those sports cars back in the day looked fast, okay? Um, 1968 and a half, 69, MG got brave, and they decided to throw in some leftover uh, Austin six-cylinder motors in there, their sedan engines, in the MGB GCs because it was owned by British Leyland at the time. So they had these leftover six-cylinders, and they're not GT6 Plus engines. They're not Triumph motors or some sort of another passenger car engine. They threw them in the MGCs uh, and put a little bump in the hood, and they came out with a pretty cool-looking car. Again, it's not very fast, but it's neat-looking. Okay, so uh, MGC is kind of a cool alternative. And they're actually getting pricey. They're pulling... 20s, 25s, you know, pulling a quarter. You know, I've seen some bring over 30 grand. TR6s obviously was the successor to the TR250, which was the TR5 in England, a fuel-injected version, which is a six-cylinder TR4. Then you had CR4 IRSs, and you had a, which was an independent rear suspension car, and you had a TR4 and a TR4A. Now, I'm sure the British car guys that are listening are probably going to jump all over me, saying, what's this German car guy trying to do? Tell us, us British car owner guys, you know, about uh, British cars. Well, Hey, I got news for you guys. Been there, done that. Okay. Now. I had tropical fish for a while, and then they died. <laughs> now, in the fall, in October, our good friends with the British Sports Car Club all get together in downtown Safety Harbor, and we have the all-British sports car, car show club thing. So if you want to see some cool little cars. And I will tell you that, you know, for, for the, the bang for the buck, you can't beat an MGB. Okay, good old MGB. Right, Bobby? That's right. Yeah, you drove that little MGB GT around. Oh, it's so easy compared to those German cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we got to work on that 356 a little bit. But anyway, yeah, and, and of course we had the TR6, which we had for a while, which would run when it felt like it and not run. And, you know, we had lights. We had left side, right side, turn signals, no turn signals, wipers, no wipers, one headlight, two headlights, sometimes two headlights and a taillight, sometimes two taillights, no headlights. You know, that's that's a British car. Now, my good friend Glenn down at Glenn's MGs, okay, here's a big plug for you, buddy. Who actually is a uh, uh, an orchestra band player? Okay, he's a a trumpist, a, tr- a trombonist, I should say. So, Glenn, if you're listening, uh, hey, by the way, go to Glenn's MGs if you need some MG stuff done because he's pretty good at. It. Not only does he work on MGs, but he also works on Triumphs, Jags, Heelys, and uh, all kinds of other British cars. But anyway, so he's just so nonchalant about it. He goes, "Well, you know, Robert, that's just the way it is. You know, I mean, there's nothing bad about it. You know, so a switch goes bad, or a light switch, a wiper switch, or whatever. So you got to spend twenty, twenty-five dollars a year and buy a new light, wiper switch. Well, you know, you would th- if you if you if, if if you try to explain that to a German guy, a German guy would flip out. He says, "No, this stuff is built. This stuff is built to last, to last forever. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt?" <laughs> anyway, so how are we doing on time here, bub? 
We're doing good. We're doing good. Okay, well, we're gonna I, go to break here in just a second. Gonna, well, you know, well, we can do that in a second. Then come right back. And if uh, Ice, Ice Jeffy doesn't call here soon, he is S O L. Okay, so anyway, and he didn't get a chance to talk about the speed culture a minute. But anyway, oh, so go ahead. Let's just uh, you got something on it. Okay, here's the deal. We're playing a little uh, Burt Bacharach. Wrote this song with uh, somebody else, and this is kind of like a tribute to Paul Newman because Paul Newman has uh, had some racing relations with uh, our guest coming on a little bit later. So we're going to play a little uh, raindrops keep falling on my head. And Not- a tribute to the weather. And we've had some pretty serious rain here in Pinellas County here the last couple of days. So, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Winning Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll, 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 we will be right back. Falling on my head and they keep falling, but there's one thing I know. soon be turning red. The cry is not for me, cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining, because I'm free. Nothing's worrying This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Frustrated looking for car shows? Want the latest in automotive news? How about videos and podcasts? Well, check out Speed Culture, the comprehensive automotive app now available on Google Play and the App Store. Speed Culture brings you motorsports event listings based on your current location. Speed Culture also brings you the latest news feeds, videos, podcasts, and more. Speed Culture, the automotive enthusiast mobile app. For more information, check out speedcultureapp.com and download it today. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make their bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Hi, this is Vic Elford, probably best known as being an original rally driver and one of the first to actually tame the Porsche 917. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. And since Jeffy hasn't uh, responded with the Skype thing yet, we're going to do the Nostalgic Radio and Cars Minute. Okay, so let me give you a rundown of what's going on this week. Obviously, the usual local car shows here, Quaker Steak and Lube, uh, Biff Burger, and and, and and those shows. But the big thing is, is next weekend, next weekend, okay, is the 24-hour Le Mans. And um, also next weekend is the Mid-America Shelby Meet. And then the week after that is the Shelby Meet, the National Shelby Convention, SAC, Shelby American Automobile Club uh, Meet is, coming, is taking place. Now, that's going to be at... Uh, Mid-Ohio Racetrack. I'd actually like to go to that one. The Mid-America Shelby Meet's a lot of fun. It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, they, they, they rent the Hallett, I think that's the name of it, Raceway there in Tulsa. It's a lot of fun. I met some pretty interesting people. You know, it's just, there's so many events to go to and it's so hard, you know, especially when you're, you know, when you're working on a budget and stuff like that. Of course, the big event, 
August is going to be Monterey Car Week. And then the next major event after that will be SEMA. In between there, we're going to have the uh, Superboats and Supercars during the Superboat races here in Clearwater. That'll be the last weekend in September, right, Bobby? That's right. Okay, so uh, having said that, let's see what we're talking about. We're talking about the MGB, and then we were talking about uh, all the the fun stuff with um, whatchamacallit's cars. What I'm going to start talking about a little bit more often now, because I've had requests for this, is uh, is talk a little bit more about cars. You know, specific cars. You know, so we're we're on, and what we're doing is actually I've got friends of mine that have cars, and so we're going to kind of tinker with these cars, and I'll kind of like to talk a little bit about like what we're working on and how we're progressing through it. For example, like the MGB GT. Okay, what people don't realize is the MGB Roadster. Most people recognize it came out in the early '60s. Okay, and they built the car through 1980. The GTB Coupe, or hatchback, was introduced in 1965 and built through 1975. So it had a 10-year run. And it was designed by Pininfarina. It's an Italian-designed car. So therefore, it has a really, really, really cool look to it. It's like a mini GT car, or some people call it the poor man's Aston Martin. Nevertheless, but 1974 and a half... Late 74s came out with rubber bumpers, and the interim cars had what they called, they were still crow bumpered cars, but they had these big bumper guards, unlike the 72 and older cars, and they were nicknamed Sabrina, and they are kind of protruding, mm, protruding, well, they're very pronounced, shall we say, bumper guards, okay? And uh, so at any rate, uh, they were nicknamed Sabrina. And I did not know this until I was kind of reading up or hanging out with the guys on the MG Forum or the MG Experience. And Sabrina is a nickname for a very well-endowed lady. And she was a model, an English model back in the 60s. Although here in the United States, I am told that they refer to those huge bumper guards as Dolly Partons. So I am told by British car aficionados. So anyway, um, we are going to, I'm going to pick up a little bit on that when we get back next week, but uh, I think it's time to get ready to bring our guests on. So what we're going to do is we're going to roll into a little break right here, and then we're going to bring our special guest on for the evening. So don't touch that dial. You're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we will be right back. Then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do, saw it through without exemption, I planned each charted course, each careful step. Along the byway And more Much more than this I did it My Way Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew When I bit off More than I could chew But through it all my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so... When you get out to that track, you sit down in that car, whatever it is that's roiling around your head, it just goes right out the window. You could tell that this was a big, big thing in his life. He made the movie winning and kind of fallen in love with racing. He was 48 years old when he started. The only thing that I ever found any grace in was an automobile. He wanted to be looked at as a driver, 
not as an Academy Award winner. He wasn't so much divided between the two. It was that film would come second to racing. He was terrible at first. The studios didn't want him doing that. I mean, they think, oh, Jesus, what, what is he doing in a race car? Is he crazy? Oh, human involvement have gone off! The only way that you're ever going to win a race is just to be right on the edge of it all the time. His whole career looked as though it were going to go down the drain because all he wanted to do was race. I think everybody wanted him to quit racing except him. They'll have to strap me down before they keep me out of these things. <laughs> there was a, a tendency to write him off as an actor. It's very, very difficult with celebrities. They're used to being a winner, and in racing, you got to pay your dues. You're always competing with yourself. You're trying to bring a little extra to your performance. Well, I think he liked the camaraderie. The fellowship of that relationship with a fellow driver, it's just nothing like it. It's not anything you can have in Hollywood at all. He was really a good driver. It's Newman's fourth national championship. Pressure to win grew as he did win, and people expected him to win again. People didn't even think of him as being a movie star racer. He was just a racer. He does that classic red-blooded American boy. Paul has a saying, I'm sure you've heard, where he says, winning isn't everything, it's just all there is. You see it with the Oscars, people vote, they say him or her. In this, you either cross the finish line first, and it's either him or her. This is Bill Warner of the Amelia Island Concord Delegates, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, we're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Now, Trans Am races were celebrated this year because it is the 50th running of the Trans Am race, and the very first Trans Am race was in Sebring in the spring of 1966. So a race announcer once quoted and described him as, the man who never seems to make a mistake in a race car. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening one of the pioneers in Trans Am racing, Bob Tullius. Bob, are you there? I'm here, Robert. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about your humble beginning, because you started in the early 60s racing little Triumph TR3s and 4s, right? As correct. I bought, I bought a TR3, um, somewhat of a pacifier to my, um, to my wife, and um, we, um, uh, she got along with it okay, but didn't like it. So uh, the first thing she said about not liking it, I took the keys and made it into a race car. In those days, it wasn't very difficult because... All you had to do was put a roll bar in and some other things for uh, SCCA, Sports Car Club of America, amateur racing. Okay, very good. Now, uh, you started racing and you were, did you just have kind of like a natural talent or did you kind of like have to hone your skills a little bit? Well, that's a little hard to explain on, on one hand. On the other hand, having been asked that question for uh, a thousand times over the past uh, 30 years of uh, motorsports. Um, the real answer to that is that I was born to be what I did. I had no, uh, no instruction, didn't need any instruction. I did what I did very naturally. That's excellent. In fact, there was a little story I was reading on you. You worked for Kodak at the time, and it got to the <laughs> point where you were... Well, you, can, you tell a story. Well... I won a couple of national championships, and I was um, uh, I was trying to keep it a low-key low sort of thing, but it was publicized and 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 magazines such as Car and Driver and Road and Track and Auto Week and that sort of thing. And my boss finally called me up one day and said, uh, um, "Do you suppose you could manage a little work into your racing schedule?" And I I was a sales manager for one of their divisions in Washington D.C. And I said no. <laughs> so I went to uh, Rochester uh, to um, uh, which was my hometown, actually, and uh, resigned my my uh, position. And from that point on, I was making very good money at Kodak. I made something like fifteen thousand dollars a year in nineteen sixty, uh, nineteen fifty-seven. And the next year, I uh, eked out uh, a living with six thousand dollars. So um, it was quite a come down, but it was something I had to do. Well, you know what? Your your wife was very supportive of you at the time too, wasn't she? Though. Very much so, uh, but um, uh, she eventually passed away, <clears throat> and I um, I had to go on with uh, my mother looking after my child, uh, and uh, 
uh, I was a very poor father because I was away all the time. But uh, um, I did okay, and he now is a uh, that son of mine is a is an attorney in in Port Orange, Florida, with four grandsons. Oh wow! Okay, so and you live in Sebring, of course, right? So you're not that far away. No, we're, it's 160 miles exactly. Okay. Well, now let me ask you this. Now, okay, so in the early 60s, you started doing very well with the, with the Triumphs, and then you got a hold of Cass Kastner's car, and that was a factory works car, wasn't it? Well, <clears throat> Triumph did not do anything in terms of factory. Okay. Um, they, uh, they supplied money for, the, uh, for Cass's operation, and he was supposed to be a uh, development engineer. He was a development engineer, and he was to develop things for racing Triumphs. <clears throat> well, he did that sort of, but um, he um, most of his efforts were uh, to beat Group Forty Four. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> well, now, but wait a minute. You had his car, though. When he he his car, evidently somehow you acquired that, and then you you campaigned that well, for a while, and then you started Group Forty Four a year later, right? Well, yes, and uh, yes, the year later is fine, but I didn't. Uh, I. Here's the story. Okay. He he uh, was commissioned by uh, the U.S. Sales Organization for Triumph to build up three cars to race at Sebring, which he did. And uh, I was invited. Uh, that was my uh, second year of national racing. And I was invited to drive with him along with several other uh, of people that I knew, uh, a couple of my friends, close friends, Eddie Deal, for example. And uh, we raced those three cars at the conclusion of the race which uh, I believe one of the cars did win. Mine didn't, but it had a mechanical failure of some sort. And um, <clears throat> But the car, one of the cars, uh, was intact, and Triumph gave it to me. Okay. And so, therefore, when I went home, we, uh, <clears throat> uh, we made it into a real race car, and, uh, and I won the national championship with it in 1963. Okay. All right. Good. Now, you mentioned Eddie Deal. Now, I know Ed. He's here in Clearwater. He actually lives in St. Pete. And we go way back uh, to SCCA days because he was in charge of the Central Florida region of uh, SCCA for a long time. So do you see him quite a bit? Well, I don't see him as often as I would like. But Ed, <clears throat> Eddie Deal was uh, the most important person in my life regarding my sport um, at the onset. Um, he and I were competitors for a short period in 1962, <clears throat> and uh, um, he ran out of money. He never had a lot, but he ran out of money, and he was helping me mechanically. And when he ran out of money, he said to me, Tullius, I, can't, I was going to be national champion this year, but I can't do it. He said, I'm going to make you national champion, and he did. Wow. That was 1962. Excellent. And that part of it is a story in itself. It's a, it could be a book, actually. But the important thing is that uh, uh, I wrecked. Oh, I got a, a free car from Triumph, which is a part of the story. And I wrecked it in the second race. And uh, I didn't wreck it. Somebody wrecked it for me. And uh, um, we, Eddie built me a car out of two wrecks that we competed together. He drove in one kind of race, the divisional races. I drove in the national races. He built that car in early 62, and it never lost a race. And I won the national championship with it, my first national championship with it in 1962. Eddie is a very, very special friend of mine. Well, it's a testament to his mechanical skills, too, as well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I called Eddie, or not Eddie, but I called a couple of his friends because I didn't have Eddie's number handy, and I told him hopefully he's tuning into the show because I said we're going to give him some credits tonight on the show. So I hope the local um, Tampa Bay uh, Sports Car Club, British Car Club, is listening. Well, I hope so because Eddie was uh, uh, the pivotal point in my – I'm not a mechanic nor an engineer. Um, all I did was stab him and steer him as a soccer guy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, – Eddie was uh, just perfect, and that year, 1962, though I was still working for Kodak at the time, uh, he was he was it. He was the one that kept me racing and kept me winning, and he won with it, and I won with it, and uh, we both. He won the divisional championship for the Washington region, and I won the national championship. It was the first one I won. Wow! And the rest is history, of course. Now, how yeah. did? 
How did the name Group 44 come about? <laughs> well, we were at Sebring in that very year, 1963, mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Furstenau, who was eventually my partner in business and my best friend, um, uh, and Dick Martin, who was also a business partner, we we had we were in a we were preparing race cars for a few people up in Virginia, and uh, we didn't like the uh, we had used our initials to to create the name of the company, but we didn't like that. And we were sitting at a little a little hotel, which actually burned down, and it's still the lot is still empty where it was called Clayton's in Sebring, and uh, we. Um, we were sitting talking about what we should name it, and I was not particularly interested in having it Bob Tullius Racing or uh, anything that had to do with my name. And uh, somebody said Group 44 because we wanted to incorporate the ne- the number in the uh, in the logo because it had become somewhat uh, notable in in sports car racing, and we thought if we were in business with it, um, it would be a valuable thing. So 44 and, uh, was the number that you were running on the car at the time? Yes. Okay, yes. okay. Uh, and therein also lies a story, but I'll get <laughs> that uh, later. But um, um, we were sitting at the table, and Dick uh, wrote the words Group 44 uh, on a napkin, and um, I put the napkin in my pocket, and when I went home, I made it into our our company corporate logo, and it's now Group 44 Incorporated, and we've... Um, added a little thing on the top of it that says approved by group 44 oh okay the colors the color scheme now you had an association with quaker steak yeah uh, oil but did you have the green before that no no we added the green to the white car oh by the way the white car i was going to paint it black because eddie wanted it black the car that he built for me in 62 was black okay and i and that was fine but and i wanted uh, he wanted it black and so did i and I mentioned that to Michael Cook, who was the PR guy for uh, a Triumph, and uh, he said, uh, no, he said, uh, leave it white because white photographs better. Hmm. So that was it. Okay. So then how did your relationship with British Leyland come about, too, then? Well, um, they, in 1962, decided they wanted to do some sports car racing, and they picked two guys that had been doing very well in their TR3s the previous year and gave them new cars in 62. Mm-hmm. And I was my first year, and uh, I went to New York. I was there for the National Business Show for Kodak, and I went to their offices on, on uh, Park Avenue, and uh, I said to them, in effect, well, I didn't say to them, in effect, I said to them in no uncertain terms that I, was, I had not run only one national race in my whole life. And I said to them, uh, I don't know why you gave those guys uh, uh, two TR4s because I'm going to win the national championship. And they just kind of laughed up their sleeves and said, ha, 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 and they didn't give me a car. But uh, a couple weeks later, I was there for another reason, and I went to the office again. And at at that point, I was leading in national points. The two guys that they gave cars couldn't hit their behind with both hands. (laughs) And uh, they... um, uh, I was leading in national national points with my TR3, and I went and the uh, Michael Cook and um, oh I can't think of his name. Is that a competition for Triumph at the time? Um, they went into the boss's office. His name was Martin Tustin, and they said we think we ought to give this Tullius guy a car, and he said no. So uh, they came out and told me no. I was in the reception room. And it was about quarter to 12. So I just sat down to wait for the president of the company to come strolling out to go to lunch. And uh, I accosted him and said, uh, uh, Mr. Tustin, I explained to him that I was winning the national championship. I was going to do it in a TR3, and your TR4s are going to be very embarrassed. And I think it would be appropriate for me to do it in a TR4. He said, you're right. He turned around and talked to the, told the guys to get me a car. Oh. <laughs> Well, now, let's go talk a little bit about Group 44. You yeah. have had a reputation for being... Now, we always talk about Penske, because Penske always had, and Shelby, always had some of the premier you know, racing organizations that were well-oiled, well-organized. You have also had the distinction of having 
a very well-run, well-maintained, perfectly prepared racing team. And not always the fastest, but you have an extremely high win record. Tell us about that. Well, I, I have only two talents in my whole life I recognize. I, I'm well over the uh, age of worrying about how old I am. And um, I realized that the, the only talents I really had were, first of all, driving the race car, and two, organizing and managing good people and choosing good people. And uh, when uh, Gil Martin, he didn't stay around long. He left, and when he left, he talked to our accountants and accountant, and he said uh, he won't last more than two months. <laughs> and that was uh, and that was the end of nineteen. That was around nineteen sixty four. And uh, obviously, he was wrong. <laughs> but the uh, uh, that was those two things were my only talents. And the race car thing, I did. We won a lot of races, and the organization. I had an interesting thing with my company that. Uh, not, no other race car organization that I know of had. My company had a private, uh, excuse me, a profit-sharing program. It was a, something that was organized by the uh, uh, Internal Revenue Service, and um, um, w- without going into great detail, of it, uh, when I closed the business, Lanky Fushi, who was my longtime c- crew chief um, for 25 years, I gave him a check for 330 $40,000 out of that profit-sharing program. And all the other employees and varying amounts got e- enormous amounts of money for doing nothing. I mean, I was the one that contributed to it. They contributed nothing, and I contributed at least 10% of their salary every year uh, for all the time they were there. That's very, very commendable of you. And I could go into detail with other companies that have done that similarly. Yeah. When I When I say that, that there's only a handful of companies that have actually done that, and you're one of them, you know, because a lot of them don't look after their employees and their team because they don't realize and place enough emphasis on how special those people are and that team, that team effort is. Fair statement? I don't, I don't know another race team that did it, but I do know some other companies that did it. Well, that's what yeah. I mean. That's what I was going. So, yeah. but the only yeah. race team. Tell us about some of the other things that you that group 44 did because there was when i was reading up on it and listening to some videos and stuff they you had you changed kind of like the the corporate image or the 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 image of racing with 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 the big transporters the way you did you organized things i mean you know penske followed you obviously but you you were kind of like almost an industry leader there in many aspects well uh the word uh the word almost didn't quite fit Okay. We were industry leaders, period. Okay. And we developed, and I, 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 you never, nothing like this ever occurs by yourself. So I will say we all the time. It wasn't always me. There were other people. Paul Brand uh, was a public relation my, for me. Uh, uh, there were several other guys. Steve Nicholas was a good one. Uh, I had three or four PR guys. And collectively, we put together a program that was to sell cars, not to race. In fact, Lanky Fushi used to say uh, we were uh, uh, Group Forty Four was a uh, Group Forty Four was a public relations firm and sometimes race to race <laughs> team. <laughs> so, but our objective was to sell cars, and the way we did it was uh, I would send the public relations guy to a uh, race, and this happened the first time in 1963 um, at Danville, Virginia. And I remember because in your intro, you had uh, words from several people that were friends of or uh, or were effectively in in Paul Newman's life. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Sharp was one of them. Bob and I are longtime good friends, competitors. And uh, we did a, a race at Danville, and my PR guy had gone to the radio stations and to the uh, uh, newspapers and uh, uh, TV stations, and we got this enormous amount of publicity because... As you well know, if you go uh, into a uh, uh, newspaper office and talk to the sports guy, give him a, give him a story about he's going to say, oh, yeah, right, I put my byline on that, and happy happy days. And uh, TV guys and radio station guys, well, anyhow, <laughs> but we got made the front page of this country town, which is Danville, Virginia, is not country anymore. But um, he, um, we made the front page of, of that, well, I'm, I think it was a sports section, actually, and the next... And the morning, 
this was Saturday morning, and when we got to uh, the track, Sharp came up to me and said, how the hell did that happen? I said, gee, I don't know, Bob. Hmm. Uh, I really don't know how that all happened. It was a, it was a big surprise to me. Well, it was no surprise. <laughs> and we did that so well throughout the nation, not just Danville, Virginia. Um, I did a, uh, uh, a uh, morning talk show with... Um, uh, with uh, who was a big football player that did knitting? Um, yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, two huge and uh, uh, Rosie Greer. Rosie Greer, yes, Rosie Greer and I, and um, uh, big uh, uh, Paul Marriott, I think. Uh, TV show. I was forever doing things like that. I I did <laughs> every year. We went to to uh, Brainerd, and my PR guy had gone all around. That's what is it? He went to every race prior to our being there for ten days, and he set up all this stuff for me. I'd fly my airplane out to the town wherever it was we we're going to be. I'd do my thing with them, and he kept me busy for three or four days, just doing newspapers, radio, and television stuff. And I'd come back and. Uh, I'd get in my airplane, come back, and then I'd fly fly the crew out to the race. And I had one place, and I used to go to every year from Duluth, Minnesota. It was um, to Duluth, Minnesota. Can you believe that? And uh, I had a lady that wanted me there every every time I came to town. She wanted me to be there at her uh, on her noon show, and I did that for several years. And it was great fun because I got to know the girl pretty good, and she did. But she asked me a question one time that people often mentioned to me. Uh, what do you think about, she said, what do you think about girl racers? And I said, well, okay. Um, and uh, uh, why don't they do as well? Uh, do you think they could do as well? And I said, yes, but. <laughs> and it was at a time when, um, uh, well, yeah, Denise McCluggage and and Donna Mims. Well, and... yes, but I'm talking about the tennis girls. Oh, the tennis girls. Yeah, and um, the the guy that was the math, uh, the male chauvinist tennis player. Um, anyhow, oh, um, it was a time when uh, uh, male chauvinist was a big thing. Gotcha. <laughs> and she asked me why I why why there weren't a lot of girls driving race cars, and I I had to take a slug of my evening gin <laughs> good <laughs> um, for you um and i said to her and i'd been trying to, i'd been asked that question before and it was always kind of embarrassing try to trying to answer that question but i finally discovered decided this is the answer that the the um, lady advocates couldn't dispute i said the reason girls don't do as good a racing at, at racing as men do is they have a much better, greater self-preservation instinct. Huh. When you stop to think about it, it really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, they don't like pain. <laughs> well, uh, other than childbirth, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I always thought that that was a, a great answer to those to that kind of question because there was no answer to it. No. And um, uh, I've... Uh, uh, I don't know any. I don't know uh, Danica Patrick, but I know a couple of the girls that were racing. Um, uh, Lynn St. James, for example, mm -hmm. is a good friend. Yes, and they all did very well. But um, uh, there, there is that. There is that difference. Mm -hmm. um, real quickly, when you mentioned Danville, you're talking about VRI, right? Yep. Okay, good. Now we got about three minutes left. I got it. And uh, I'd like to, because I, 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 I talked a little bit about the Trans Am thing. So tell us about the 66 Trans Am season and the and why a dart? Well, it wasn't why a dart. And people ask me why I did I do Jaguar, why I did Triumph, why I did darts, why I did a Pontiac in 16. It was all money. Okay. That's how I survived. It was my business. Gotcha. And uh, if I didn't have a race organization that raced cars, I wasn't going to make any money. This is true. And uh, go back to the Dodge thing. Okay. Um, I, uh, Chrysler decided that uh, uh, they should have a race team, and it was Team Starfish, the, the uh, Barracuda. Barracuda. And the Dodge people went berserk. <laughs> they got to have, um, uh, they got to have one too. And uh, 
so um, uh, Scott Harvey, who was running the Scott, uh, the uh, the uh, Team Starfish program, he knew me, and he called me up and asked me if I'd want to do that. I said, of course, why not? I was racing Triumphs, and I wanted to make bigger, bigger, bigger for uh, Triumphs and for Group 44. I didn't care who, what we were racing. I didn't really never cared what we were racing. All I want, I was a competitor, not not a, uh, I wasn't a dedicated person to uh, any kind of mark. All I wanted to do was earn a living. And uh, uh, when it came to that Dodge thing, I thought that was fine. So we did that. We went to Sebring, and uh, team start. Uh, we were the third. We were third in line. We were team. Team. Cr- cr- uh, they were team Chrysler, but they didn't enter us as Chrysler, which was a bad mistake. Um, and uh, uh, I was the third man on the totem pole. So uh, when we had a team meeting, we'd say, uh, um, uh, Charlie Rainville, you lead, and uh, Bruce Jennings, you run second, and Tullius and your Dodge, we ran third. And uh, and off we went in the race, and don't you know there was uh, somebody in the woodpile, <laughs> and that <laughs> that was A.J. Foyt, and he was in the Mustang. Oh, was he? <laughs> and, and he went zooming off, and uh, the two starfish cars couldn't catch him. And I was relegated to being third, so I was running four at that point. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, when I um, decided that... Uh, uh, I didn't want to do that any longer. I passed the two starfish guys, which was against team rules, and uh, and caught up to uh, 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 AJ and passed him, won the race, and that was the first uh, Trans Am race in 1966. That's excellent. We got about a minute or so left. Um, you did two other cars that were kind of interesting. And, and what I, I, Bob, would you be willing to come on the show again? Because I'd love to have you get, come on again and talk a little bit more about racing and your career because it's very fascinating and your and and the way you approached it. That's what's very interesting about it. But you did a Jaguar E-type Roadster, okay, a twelve-cylinder car in seventy-four, seventy-five, and then you took an XJS and raced it in Trans Am mm-hmm. later. I mean, two odd cars. And I remember watching the, the XJS because later it wound up in vintage, and I used to see it every once in a while. Well, the E-Type, Brian Firstenau, who is my best friend and my chief engineer and partner, he said when they asked us to do it, Jaguar asked us to do it E-Type, he said that thing doesn't want to be a race car. Well, we won a national championship in 1975 with it and beat the sh- Corvette. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Or um, beat the hell out of the uh, <laughs> and and then in 1977 they wanted us to continue Jaguar wanted us to continue so we took a XJS and we thumped them thumped those Corvettes in and 77 won the drivers championship and in 1978 we won seven out of the Trans Am races and won the drivers championship. And the manufacturer's championship. The manufacturer's championship had to be won in a race at Mexico City. Wow! And if we and if we didn't win, we weren't going to get the manufacturer's championship. Excellent, Bob. We're out of time. We're up against the clock. I want to thank you very much for coming in here and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Green Cars. Please come back. I want to thank my special guest, Bob Tullius, the legendary Bob Tullius. Anytime, Robert. Okay, thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Getting Cars. Be sure and check out our show every Tuesday night on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, Nostalgic Getting Cars, a podcast show. Bobby, right? Social media. Don't forget all that stuff. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and our YouTube channels and Periscope. Also, download Speed Culture, the enthusiast mobile app. Tells you where all the car shows are. And stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDTF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.